This is Bump and Beyond with Yolandi Becker, the show about pregnancy and babies, 101.9 megahertz of life. You are on 101.9 High FM. This is Bump and Beyond and I am Yolandi Becker and Happy New Year. It is the new year and Yes, with the new year comes New Year's resolutions and planning and, of course, also back to school. And today's show specifically is going to talk about preparing for back to school. Next week, again, we'll talk about it a little bit more, back to school. But specifically, when your kids start going back to school, the reality is is that there's new bugs, new infections happening and sicknesses come, especially if you've been away or they've been out of school for quite um, a long time, which is normally the case, uh, December, January. And then all is going well. We're having a great summer time and all of a sudden it's back to school and we start from scratch again with all those illnesses. My own children, I remember up until the age of, I would say six years, it was almost like, they started March and end in September, but it was always like a little bit of snottiness that happened as they start the school year. Ear infection is actually one of the most common reasons for antibiotics to be prescribed for children, with 75% of children having at least one ear infection before their third birthday. What's more, it's caused by the same germs that give way to upper respiratory tract infection. Often ear infections affect babies who can't talk and tell us something is wrong. And that's, I think, the worst part is because sometimes also, or lots of times, and I'm going to speak um, to Dr. ENT, uh, or Dr. ENT, <laughs> can you believe it? ENT, Dr. Nina DeToy about this today, specifically talking about ear infections and what are the signs and how we can see um, it happening. But... Often when we do lay babies down, if they have fluid in their ear, it can actually cause them to cry because it's painful for them. It's not yet an infection, but they could have fluid in their ear already. And it can be because babies can't tell us something's wrong. We don't always know. And then we're like making the checklist. It's like, are they clean? Um, is the diaper clean? Or they fed all those things. And it starts becoming a little bit distressing for us as parents because we don't know if it is pain or what is wrong. Um, and it's stressful to have that. But some of the signs that you can look out for if you suspect that your baby has ear infection is that they might be tugging at their ears. They might be a little bit more fussy and crying. They might have trouble sleeping. If it is an ear infection, not just fluid in the ear, that there might be a, fe- a fever. Um, or even if it's really bad, it could, ha- they could have fluid draining from their ears. Sometimes it might affect their balance or it could have, uh, you could notice that they're not hearing you well or there's delay in their speech. So I'm very much looking forward to having this discussion with our expert who is ENT and mother of two, Dr. Nina de Toy, about getting back into school and surviving <laughs> these um, uh, you know, bugs that come along with it. And to actually find out a little bit what ENTs actually do, that ear, nose, and throat specialist. There are several steps you can take to reduce your child's risk of developing ear infections. 
You can, for instance, vaccinate your child, of course, and keep your child's vaccines up to date. Breastfeeding, um, there is research that shows that breast milk contains antibodies that help reduce the risk of ear infections and a host of other ailments for that matter. Wash your hands frequently. The best way to protect your child against any colds and flu is to keep your hands clean. Steer clear of sick people. In general, and that's why I have a, it's my pet hate when my children are being sent to school and someone sends their kid to school with a snotty nose. Because for one kid, it's a snotty nose. And for the next kid, it is upper respiratory infection or an ear infection. Looking forward to our discussion today. This is Bump and Beyond with Yolandi Becker, the show about pregnancy and babies, 101.9 megahertz of life. You are on 101.9 High FM. This is Bump and Beyond, and I am your host, Yolandi Becker. As I mentioned earlier, it's the new year, and with the new year comes going back to school. And going back to school has its some challenges, which we will also be talking about next week again. But a big challenge is the fact that, especially if you've been on a pretty long break, it's back to all the germs and all the infections of going back to school. Hence why I am getting in an expert today to talk about this, because I think ear infections and ear pain and those type of things are especially prevalent with small children. I myself I was lucky with my first Oscar didn't have any ear problems. I don't know how I dodged. I also think it's because he was the only person and he only went to school much later. But by the time Amy was born, Oscar was already in school. And then even though she wasn't in school, he brought back a nice amount of germs. So she got ill relatively early i would say she was the first time she was on antibiotics she was nine months or something and then um later i think she was about 18 months again she got sick when she went started going to school and then she had to get um she got a really bad ear infection she has so much moisture in her ears i pretty much went to the ped and he was saying to me it's like we better go to the hospital soon this is not good and they did like a pressure chest and everything once again I am not the expert on it. I'm getting in the expert in on this. Hence why I'm talking with ENT and mother of two, Dr. Nina de Toy. Hello, Nina. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. It is only a pleasure because this is, I think, the chances of missing an ear infection when your child is small is relatively low. Uh, I don't think that is, I think most parents will have at least with one of their kids. And it, yeah, I feel like once it, your child has had it once, I feel like it comes back all the time. Let's start with that. Why are ear infections more common with babies? It's such a good question, and it's not just um, coincidence. But if you think about a baby's structure in, anatomically, they obviously have much smaller heads and much smaller sinuses and smaller ear canals. And so we all have a tube that drains our ears. And you know when you're on an aeroplane and you have to equalize, or if you're diving? Yes. 
there's a, a tube there called the eustachian tube, which connects your ear and your nose. And so that little tube in a baby is literally like two millimeters in diameter. So you can imagine how easily a little bit of a snotty nose can block that tube. The second thing is, because they're still growing, that little tube is almost um, horizontal, whereas as we grow and our skull gets longer, that tube aims downwards. So gravity is not the baby's friend either. So any fluid in the ears struggle to drain through the eustachian tube with a baby, either because of structural reasons that, you know, it's, it's very horizontal instead of going downwards, or because it gets so easily blocked because it's so small. And so when fluid can't drain out of the ears, it just lies there. And it's, if you think about a pond with no running water, you know, a fluid that's stagnant becomes mucky. Yeah. And so that's how easily they get infection. It can either be fluid and that causes pain and pressure like a balloon that's blowing up but can't pop, it can't go anywhere. Or it can then grow a bacteria, a germ, and then become an infection, which will go full-blown fever, you know, um, a, a severe pain. But even a, a fluid without infection can cause pain. Oh, that's interesting that you mentioned that because I can also remember, also as obviously a sleep consultant, we have this quite uh, uh, quite commonly where um, children, when they're during the day, dinner time, they're all fine. And then as soon as you lay them down, they start screaming and crying. Is this then, but then the baby doesn't have a fever or anything like that. And then I always now incorrectly assume it has to do with an ear infection, but you're saying it's just the fluid in the ear that's causing the pressure. Yes. So um, what you mentioned there is often a telltale sign for me that there might be pressure build up in the child's ears because the moment you lie down, down, there's more blood flow going to the head, and that's when it starts throbbing. You know, like if you've hurt, if you've hurt your finger, if you've picked your finger in the car door, mm. if you keep it up in the air, it kind of feels better. But when you lower it, it starts throbbing. Yes. And so it's the same thing when they lie down. So that's why they hunky-dory and happy and playing during the day. But then after about half an hour, after falling asleep or so, the pain starts throbbing. Um, and like you said, they don't necessarily have to have a fever. And I think that's a concept that some people don't realize. And some GPs or some pediatricians will sometimes say, yeah, but the child is not sick, so he can't have an infection. <clears throat> and that's true. But that doesn't mean that they can't have fluid buildup and pain in those ears. And that's when we start referring to a chronic blue ear. The fluid just lies there and it becomes thick and sticky and it just can't drain anymore. And so when we open those ears, you literally get fluid out that it's, it's so that you imagine that it could never have drained by itself. And so that's when there's a massive release when you can remove that in theater via the little hole for the grommet. If you've just joined us, you are on 101.9 High FM. I am Yulandi Becker, and I'm speaking to Dr. She's not just a, any doctor. <laughs> She's an ENT, um, uh, Dr. Nina DeToy, specifically more about going back to school, ear infections, grommets, and all those things. And you were just mentioning that you've got the glue ear and everything. How long? So if you've got fluid in the ear, does it 
does it always become blue ear if you don't drain it? Do you have to get an operation to drain it? Can it drain on its own for a baby? And when does it then become an infection? How long does it take? Or is it depending on the child and who they're in contact with? Okay, so it obviously varies from child to child. But um, I think a lot of moms who have kids in, in um, creches have had the the um, privilege of having ear tests done at school. And I think a, lo- a lot of the schools are doing it nowadays. Audiologists go to the school and they come back with a little report. And then it says there, oh, your child has ear infection. And um, then they wonder, but why? And what that does is that's actually just a measurement of the pressure in the middle ear. And so they pick up that there's increased pressure, there's fluid buildup, like the little balloon that I referred to. Um, And so the audiologist immediately calls it an infection. But this is now the situation where the child's not sick. So that's fluid buildup. So this can happen to anyone when they have a flu or a snotty nose or really bad allergies that's blocking the drainage pathway to the nose. Even when we as adults have a really bad flu, sometimes our ears get blocked or painful. So the Eusekian tube is supposed to be able to drain this. And so it often does drain naturally. That's why not every child under the sun will need grommets. And my feeling is I usually always try and even treat it medically first before I do grommets. So in other words, you want to try and open up that drainage pathway. You have to decrease the inflammation in the back of the nose. So what a lot of doctors will often give you in such a circumstance is a nasal spray to decongest the nose, something like salines, um, Sterimar to just get all the mucus out. Secondly, you can use a short course of something to decongest, something like Iliadin or Otrovin, only for five days. And you can even use Flixinase nasals, which is a topical steroid that will try and open up that tube. In severe cases, people even give you uh, a corticosteroid to drink, like Aspalone. Um, so those are all, all methods to try and help the ear to drain naturally. And if it does, then that's fantastic. Then the child will hopefully, as they grow older, be able to drain it more easily. But sometimes if it's been there for a really long time and it's become very sticky and the child has really bad allergies or they've, or they've had a lot of infections, RS virus and adenovirus, and there's been a lot of inflammation, then sometimes even with the medication, it just doesn't drain. The rule of thumb is you should allow three months for it to drain naturally. It can take that long to dissolve. Oh, wow, that is really long. (laughs) Yeah, so if you get a measurement from an audiologist or if someone looks in the ear and says, but there's fluid, if the child's not ill, if they're not having fever and severe pain, then you can allow three months of conservative management. Um, some of the things that I mentioned now medically, and then wait, watch and wait. Yes. And see if it drains. Um, and if after three months it still hasn't drained, then it just won't drain actually, and that's when you decide then to do grommets. There's other reasons why you would do it earlier. Obviously, if it's making the child really ill, if they're getting very high fevers, needing antibiotics all the time, and then the other aspect uh, is the speech and the hearing. Uh, so it's in such a critical time of the child's language development. 
if you have fluid in your ears, it feels like you're underwater all the time. Ah, so you're not hearing properly and you're not hearing, ah, and not learning properly. Exactly. And so a telltale sign can sometimes be delayed speech. If a child is having, uh, you know, they're 18 months and they're only saying mama, you need to start wondering why. And um, that's when we then also test the pressure. It doesn't necessarily mean they have a hearing problem. They're just blocked. Yes. <laughs> and once yes. you can believe that, um, often within a week, you, you have like six new vocabulary words added. <laughs> um, and another funny one is the child's balance. Oh. I have one mother who the child started really, really early with um, infections and grommets. And so he's had to have it twice in his lifetime. But she knows when it's blocked. <laughs> because she says he starts falling off his bike or he walked into the wall. <laughs> and then the moment we manage to open up the grommets or treat it, his balance is bad. Yeah. <laughs> it has yeah. a really big effect on a lot of things. This is Bump and Beyond with Yolandi Becker, the show about pregnancy and babies. 101.9 megahertz of life. This is 101.9 High FM, Bump and Beyond, and I'm Yolandi Becker speaking to ENT Dr. Nina DeToy. So uh, before we get into more detail with the grommets, I first want to just clarify or ask the question is, obviously you are an ENT. For those of you that don't know, an ENT is an ear, nose, and throat specialist. So none, none of us, I do have to say for me personally, my ENT was a game changer in my life. Um, when I finally, after 38 years, got to an ENT because I had a deviated septum for a very long time that went undiagnosed. So I had sinus problems for a very long time and it was a game changer. So I'm, I love you guys. That's my <laughs> uh, personal, uh, not even with my kids. My kids also had, like I said, grommets, but traditionally, obviously we don't go to an ENT immediately. It is first we go to a ped and they probably would refer us. When, when does it become, first of all, tell us what is an ENT and what do you, I know now it specializes in that, but what do you do? And when does it come to a point where we have to, you know, rather go to an ENT and not to a ped? Um, so like you very well said, the ear, nose, throat, that's the abbreviation. Um, if you want to be fancy, we are otorhinolaryngologists. Oh, I'm glad <laughs> I didn't have to say that. <laughs> but yeah, so so we most of us do all three, um, ears, nose, and throat. A big part of our work is a lot of sinus-related um, diseases, like you mentioned in adults. But in any age, <clears throat> certain ENTs will choose a specific area that they enjoy more. They'll do just ear surgery or just sinus and navel surgery. But most of us do a lot of pediatrics. Mm-hmm. We all end up with the time of working with the kids. It's one of the reasons why I chose the speciality. And and then throat refers to a lot of the vocal cord and swallowing issues, as well as a lot of cancers, which I think a lot of people don't realize that we work with cancers. But there's a lot of throat and mouth and sinus and tongue and brain cancers that that involve the ears, etc. Oh, and so, wow. so um, that's also a field that certain ENTs choose to work in more. But anyway, back to what we are chatting about today with the little children. I think, um, like you said, we naturally go to our GP or our pediatrician. um, And I think 
I think it's very important that the pediatrician or the GP knows when to refer um, because there's a certain level of how many times are you going to treat a child and, you know, how low is his immune system going to have to go before you intervene. And so, the like I said, the rule of thumb, according to the textbooks with an ear infection, is three months. If you haven't been able to clear it within three months, the fluid, yeah. or if it recurs within three months, the infection, then it's time to, to, to go to your ENT. I think one of the other reasons I often see child children is when parents are a bit frustrated if they've been to more than one doctor and the same thing is being done over and over again and the child doesn't do well, um, then they sometimes self-consult. And, and I can understand that as well because it feels like you're going in a circle. And often that is the case with the ears. And, um, so, so I think when you, when you, when you're at a point where your gut tells you that my kid just can't have another course of antibiotics, I think it's a good idea. You don't need a referral to come and see us. You can book straight with us. So you don't have to wait for your pediatrician to refer. Um, And then lastly, the, the, the thing I mentioned earlier about the speech, that's a big one for me that often the children don't get referred early enough for me. So I think if you have any concern about your child's hearing, if you feel like, you know, they're putting the TV on really loud or they're always going, ha, <laughs> or... Um, is it they, that old is... children? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can't fix selective hearing. <laughs> but, um, yeah, and if their speech is just not up to scratch, you know, often they'll have a very... Um, they'll hear and they'll talk, but they, they will won't pronounce clearly. Mm. They'll, they'll, they'll muffle some of their sounds or switch around a lot of their consonants. And that's probably because that's how they hear it. They're muffled and blocked ears. And so, so that's me a big one for self-referral is if you as a mother or a father feel that your child's speech or hearing is not up to scratch, then go see your ENT, even if the examination is normal, at least then you've excluded that. And then lastly, something that you guys now work with a lot is the sleep. I think when you really don't know why your child is waking up a lot at night, and if, especially if they're crying a lot at night, you know, then I think it's also worth checking out the ears to exclude that because it can often be a very hidden reason for a poor sleeper. And a lot of people out there just accept their lot and say, oh, I just have a bad sleeper. It's one of those things. One day when they're five, it'll be better. But I don't believe that. I believe all children want to sleep. All children need sleep. All people. (laughs) Yes, yes, and adults, and yeah, especially mothers. Um, And so, so that's that's the last reason why I would say if you're not sure why your child keeps on waking up. If you've just joined us, you are on 101.9 High FM. Uh, this is Bumper Beyond. I'm Yolandi Becker, and I'm speaking to ENT Dr. Nina Detoy about what ENTs do and specifically now going into school, back to school and all those things, more germs, more ear infections, all those type of things. It's been really like interesting and I've learned a lot already, even though I thought I already knew quite a bit considering my children also had some ear problems. But anyway, so you mentioned also now, okay, that's, Grommets. Let's get to the one of the treatments for constant ear infections or fluid in the ears is grommets. You also mentioned that it takes a while until you get to that point, and there's various reasons you might start earlier. 
t- explain to us what is grommets and yeah, when do you get to that point of you have to have grommets? How many times do you have to have antibiotics on your child before you get grommets? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, so like I said before, the, the textbook rule of thumb is three months. If you can't clear the fluid or if you've had more than one infection in three months. <clears throat> but you do have certain scenarios where a child has got fevers of 40, 41. They're admitted in hospital. They're in so much pain that you would actually go and do emergency grommets as well. So there are certain um, uh, certain exceptions to the rule. Um, but but when you've reached a point where medical management is not clear, all right, you've had multiple antibiotics, and there's not a rule of how many times. It's more about how long has the child been having blocked gears. Um, <clears throat> but generally for me, when you reach three or four courses of antibiotics, antibiotics in a year I feel I think one or two courses of antibiotics a year is appropriate um unfortunate but quite normal for a child especially a child in kindergarten um but I think when it comes to three to four courses personally um even though the textbook would say up to six or seven I personally as a mother and as from my experience I know that those children will not resolve they are going to end up with six or seven courses yes. if we don't get to it. So then it reaches the point where we now have to go and get that fluid out to relieve the child's pain, to help them hear better, and to take away that bacterial load, which is causing the infection over and over again. It's a very simple and very small non-invasive surgery. We actually are able to do it in the rooms under local anesthetic, and we do it for adults like that because it's such a small procedure. But obviously in small children, they won't lie still. And so it's done under general anesthesia, but it is literally a 15-minute anesthesia. And so um, everything is done through the ear canal. There are no scars to worry about. We work with a microscope because it's obviously really small. Um we visualize the eardrum. If we have to remove a little bit of wax, we do that first. And then we can usually see the eardrum is bulging like a little balloon. It looks like it's ready to pop. Or you can even see little bubbles behind the eardrum because of the fluid buildup. And it's often very red. Or you can even see yellow pus shining through if it's infected. We then take a tiny, tiny two millimeter little knife. It looks that like is a really tiny, tiny little knife. <laughs> the, the tip, the tip of the knife is two millimeters. It looks like a little spear. Um, and we make a tiny hole in the bottom front part of the eardrum. That's where the, the, the lowest part. So that gravity obviously drains to that point. Um, we then suck the fluid out. Um, and often it's so sticky. We even struggle to get it out. And then I always know, well, this child was never going to be able to clear it by themselves. We suck out as much as we can. Sometimes we even rinse a little bit with sterile saline to try and make sure we've got all the infective material out. And then you get different types of grommets. The, there's a very big variety. There are silicon grommets and titanium grommets and other types of plastics and nickel and and the different sizes and shapes. And each surgeon has their preference and their reasons. I won't go into that. But it is basically, it looks like a little dumbbell, you know, a dumbbell weight. So that one of the sides goes into the eardrum and the other side stays outside. And oh. so it can't fall in or out. 
And so and it's obviously hollow in the middle. So it's literally like a little pipe that's going to keep that hole open so that if the fluid builds up again, it can drain outwards. And in that time, it's important that now the child hopefully we can treat the nose reasons and the other reasons why they're not draining so that the natural drainage pathway can heal. And that's going to bring me to one of our next points that we can chat about, and that's the, the adenoids and the nose and the snoring and the allergies. Yes. Um, but basically, the grommets usually stay in for plus minus six months, and we, 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 we leave them in because we want the natural drainage pathway to have time to heal. And if the ear is clean, that eustachian tube, that pathway has a better chance to heal nicely and open up. And your eardrum grows and sheds off layers, just like our skin does. Oh. And as it grows, the grommet actually moves backwards and upwards and then eventually is pushed out. And that takes plus minus six months in most children. Um, there are reasons why they sometimes fall out earlier. If the child has a lot of infection still with the grommet, then there's a lot of pus. Then it often gets pushed out earlier. And sometimes if the child has very healthy ears, the grommet just never falls out. <laughs> and then you have to go and remove it before they go to school, round about in grade R or when they're about five years old or so. Um, but that's very rare that that happens. And it's not the end of the world. You just go and take it out. But, um, yeah, it's very rare that that happens. I mean, for me, I have to say personally, the grommets was also a game changer. It was very quickly, like I said, we had to go for like, like an emergency. Looking back, I'm not a hundred percent convinced it was necessary, but who would know? She was much better afterwards and it was such an easy, quick, um, operation. And for me, how quickly the recovery, obviously after the anesthesia, she was a little bit weird and groggy, um, for a moment afterwards. I would say an hour afterwards, a little bit groggy, but there was, I, I felt like she, was so much better afterwards. Like um, you could see that that pain was fine and it wasn't something anymore. And it was, that for me was like really uh, the most important thing. This is Bump and Beyond with Yolandi Becker, the show about pregnancy and babies. 101.9 megahertz of life. If you've just joined us, we're slowly but surely running out of time because this conversation is so interesting. But this is 101.9 High FM, Bump and Beyond. And I'm Yolandi Becker speaking to ENT Dr. Nina DeToy about your infections with babies, ear infections. We specifically now spoken about grommets, but you mentioned also the other part of this, the adenoids and those things. What, what are we talking about here okay. now? <laughs> so I obviously have to explain this to a lot of parents in front of me. So I love just bringing it back to very basics. When you open your mouth, you've got two tonsils that sit there and we all know where they are and kind of what they look like but you have another tonsil and it sits behind the nose so right behind your soft palate up towards the nose there where you usually feel your post-nasal drip there's a tonsil that sits there and we call it the adenoid or adenoids and only children have them you outgrow them at around the age of plus minus 10 to 12 years they're part of our primary immune system as children they, they fight off infections, etc. Um, the thing with them is, even though they have a function, they're very responsive. 
to any infection or any allergy. So when a child is exposed to viruses or bacteria at a very early age, either from, like you mentioned, the older brother or sister bringing bugs home, or they're going to crash themselves, or if they've just been unfortunate enough to be have had a really bad RS virus and admitted to hospital when they've already been like nine months old or whatever, those children's lymph, lymph tissue, their glands, their immune system is so reactive that that tonsil behind the nose, the adenoid, swells up a lot because it's fighting. It's doing its job. But when it swells up very big, it does two things. It blocks the nose. And so we often have these children that have very blocked noses. You can even hear when they're drinking their bottle, they sometimes have to gasp for air in between sips. Um, they will be snoring at night or just have very noisy breathing. And they'll often sleep with their mouths open because they can't breathe through their nose. They're breathing through their mouths. Um, and they often also have a very runny nose because the mucus can't drain. So it just runs out the front. <laughs> and so that's the one thing. But the other thing is this drainage pathway of the ears that we've been speaking about so much, the Eustachian tube, it opens up right next to those adenoids. And so when the adenoids are really big, it's blocking the ears. And so it often goes hand in hand. So it's very interesting because you also mentioned now for me, this is such a great conversation. I think we could talk for hours and hours on end about this topic. But you mentioned as well babies now, they uh breathing through their mouth and struggling to breathe. And that is also, that's not a common, children shouldn't be breathing through their noses and they shouldn't be snoring. So if they are snoring, is this then a sign that the adenoids or the tonsils are like, swollen up and that you should be taking care of it what would you do then yes um absolutely a child should not be snoring a child should be a silent sleeper small babies the first six months of their lives can often have a soft snore that's just often structurally because they have such small little airways and it gets blocked easily and often with a little bit of saline and a baby back or a nose breeder you can clear that up but when they're older than six months, um, that's when we start worrying if they're snoring. Um, it's not normal. And, and, and I think it's important for people to realize they mustn't just accept that this is how the child is breathing. Long-term mouth breathing has many effects on a lot of aspects. One is your development of your jaw. Your upper jaw doesn't flatten out. It stays very rounded and high-arched. And so then there's often not enough space for the teeth. So these are the kids that's going to end up with braces. Um, the second thing is the enamel dries out a lot during the night if your mouth is open. You've got a dry mouth. So that you actually are, you're at risk of developing dental caries. Mm. You're at risk of getting problems with your teeth. And your mouth, your, your, your breath can even smell because of the, the dryness effect. And you also at a higher risk to develop tonsillitis because the tonsils dry out and they develop stones inside of them with calcified mucus. And so that's one aspect. The other aspect is it even affects, you know, their quality of sleep. They, they stay in their light sleep. And you can probably tell me much more about that. But as I understand it, if you're in your, REM sleep, and you then have to go into deep sleep where the restorative sleep is that the child needs for their brain and their development and their growth. The moment 
to go into the deep sleep and the muscles all relax. If the adenoids are really big and blocking the back of your throat and your nose, that's when you then block and the child goes, gasps for air as they snore and they wake themselves back up into light REM sleep. And so they're still sleeping, but they're restless sleepers and they're just in their light sleep most of the night and they're not getting the restorative sleep that affects your immune system, that affects your growth. And some of these kids, as they get older, can even struggle with their concentration and attention and can be labeled as ADHD. And meanwhile, they're just not sleeping properly. Um, another thing is they can wet their beds because of it. Um, oh. The hormone that helps the bladder stay contracted, etc., is affected if you're not sleeping well. And so if you're having these breaks in between, your, every time you gasp, you place pressure on your bladder. And the hormone is also released that now causes the bladder to contract. And so some of these kids might struggle with nighttime potty training. And that's just because they're not breathing properly. Hmm. And so it's got such a big effect on their development overall that it's a very big passion for me to make sure that the airway is open. It's so interesting how the whole body obviously works together and one tiny small thing can have a very big domino effect on all the other things that has happened. But unfortunately, Nina, we have run out of time. It has been so fantastic. Now it just gives us an opportunity to talk again um, about more in detail about how we can prevent ear infections and all those things. But it's been really great. I think parents are a lot more prepared for dealing with the new bugs that are coming for back to school. So thank you so much for joining me. Such a big pleasure. And it was really fun talking about it. And I really hope everyone has a lovely holiday. And that is it for Bump and Beyond on 101.9 High FM for today. If you've missed the show, which was a good one, as we spoke to ENT Dr. Nina DeToy about ear infections, adenoids, tonsils, tonsillitis, all those things. So if you missed it, don't distress. This will be available as a podcast on our website, highfm.com. That and many other podcasts will be available. It is stressful when our children are sick and it is nice to be able to have these type of experts on the show to help us know what to look out for. You're not alone in that journey where you're thinking, what is wrong with my child? And even Nina mentioned it as well, is that sometimes you just need to follow your instincts. So if you're not happy with your doctor, if you're, you don't agree with what they're saying, don't be afraid to question and get a second opinion because sometimes you should, or not sometimes, you should be following your, your mom instinct and that gut that you have. But it's been lovely speaking to you today and join me next week as we continue our back to school talks and we're going to be talking teething and taking care of our babies and toddlers teeth with pediatric dentist Dr. Eli Paulson. Successful mothers are not the ones that never struggled. They are the ones that never gave up despite the struggles. None of us know the best combination of things to do for our children to make them great. More often than not, as parents, we just close our eyes and we hope for the best. Some might call this faith. Thank you for joining me. Until next time, enjoy your day.